Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is sponsored by App Figures. App Figures is all about giving game makers the tools they need to get more downloads and revenue. You may already know them for analytics and app store optimization. Now, App Figures can help you track competitors from how many downloads they're getting and how much money they're making to their audience demographics and even which SDKs they use. Their competitor intelligence gives you great context, say a competitor as a new feature or was mentioned in the news. With App Figures, you can see if that brought in more downloads. Got a great idea for an app or a game? With App Figures, you can figure out how big the market is and how much money you could be making with it. And that's just scratching the surface. Whether you're growing your app or building a new one, App Figures has the tools you need to reduce risk and get more downloads. You don't need a large budget or a data science degree to do this kind of stuff anymore. App Figures has made it affordable and simple. On top of tools, App Figures also provides a lot of guides and tutorials to take you step-by-step through gaining more visibility with ASO and increasing your revenue by learning from your competitors. They just released a free guide on that, actually. So head over to appfigures.com, A-P-P-F-I-G-U-R-E-S.com forward slash on, O-N, forward slash game dev unchained to try App Figures for free. If you like it, then use our special code GDU3030 to get 30% off for the next three months. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Game Dev Unchained, the one game development podcast about game development and the lifestyle thereof. I am your host, Brandon Pham, back at it to conclude this best of 2021 series with a part five of five. Hopefully you guys have been enjoying this past week worth of recap episodes of the year to kind of set up what this next year of excitement is looking like. For every successful team, whether big or small, it is always made up of an individual effort uh, combined with other amazing individuals, right? So I want to kind of isolate these amazing people that I was able to interview last year. Uh, Unfortunately, I was only able to kind of pick four, but... uh, Within these interviews, I found very encouraging, inspirational um, conversations, and I definitely want to kind of give it its limelight. And if you guys have the time, you guys like the little short clips here, uh, I really, really encourage you guys to kind of listen to the full episode uh, whenever you can. So first up, this is with Scott LaGrasta, Stark. Uh, Scott and I actually go way back at the beginning of my career and worked at 2K and and shipped Bioshock together. And he was very interesting because he made the move from designer to programmer. So we reconnected and was able to kind of catch up at the beginning of the year for an hour uh, about what's been going on and how he was able to basically be a professional uh, at major companies for two different career paths, right? So, He's currently at Massive Entertainment, 
uh, previously just shipped Division 2 and working on probably the next one. Who knows? But uh, it was a very interesting talk. So this is from episode 251 from Designer to Programmer with Scott Legrasta. Enjoy. Conversation. <laughs> but I guess it is like two separate minds where it's like yeah, one is very creative and one's very like by the numbers, right? Yeah, so and it does vary from like studio to studio. Like I have been like, you know, at, at, when we were working on Bio 2, like, I feel like we had a really good relationship with the other programmers there. Like yeah. they were all great people. A lot of them really helped me in in my transition to, to engineering. And like, yeah, I I am still in contact with them and consider them friends. And then I have worked at other studios where like they're like on my do not hire list. Like if I see that person's <laughs> resume come across like you know somebody's desk or whatever, I'm like maybe you should not hire that person. They're yeah super rude. Like you know maybe they're really talented and maybe they're uh, technically competent, but like I. I'm too old for this, man. I don't have the patience for like people who are like who like are rude or browbeat others or demean others just because they think it makes them better. Like I, no, like miss me with that totally. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think everybody who's been through this uh, have basically a list that they uh, <laughs> that they keep up with. Um, but I, I, I also kind of am drawn to what you said before, like you know, you kind of being sequentially in the Bay area a lot like a lot of those companies for a good period just shut down once you know one after another and yeah. just trying to be a developer in that area for a while just felt very disheartening and um can really burn someone out unless you focus on you know getting the work done and moving on uh everything else become a distraction and there's a lot that i try to convey to listeners a lot to you know, I went through that period, you know, just <laughs> office politics and all that stuff. And yeah. Yeah, it definitely wears you down. And by the end of it, it, it serves no purpose, you know, uh, for, for yourself. So uh, a couple of things that you kind of pointed out, like, I didn't know that you had a tech art background before going to designs. I just assumed that you've always been a designer. So, so was the design was more about you wanting that the creative control over the game that you put out and then going back, figuring out you know, what happened there where you felt design wasn't fulfilling enough. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's interesting. Well, I mean, it's, it's unique, at least like my career path, like the first, you know, sort of, sort of 10 years or so where I did design work, that was really largely influenced by a single conversation early in my career. And it's oh. really wild to think about that now um, where it was just a series of sort of two chance meetings where um, I had, you know, I, I just started in QA, um, and I was like, all right, I'm, you know, this is, again, this is like 2004 or whatever, when, you know, that was, uh, you know, a pretty viable path into the industry still. Um, but I was like, all right, I'm in, I, I got my foot in the door. I'm going to move up now. How do I do that? And I was, I was of two minds. I was like, okay, well, I like the design seems really interesting. Like that seems where like the fun is where you really define what the game is about. But I love like, you know, the engineering puzzles and like those really unique challenges. Um, you know, like, it's, I like to say it's like detective work, but you might not realize that you're also the person who committed the crime. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was sitting there like, you know, trying to figure out what I was going to do. And, um, and somebody came up to me and it turned out it was, I forget his, his exact position, but he was some like big wig in the programming, you know, uh, department there. And I was like, oh, hey, cool. Like, I'd really like to know, you know, what's, what's my path to being a programmer here? And he said, oh, well, you know, where's your degree from? And I was like, I, I don't have a CS degree. And he just shook his head and was like, if you don't have a CS degree, you're not going to be a programmer. And I was like, oh, okay. Uh, 
all right, well, that sucks. And so I was kind of bummed out about that. And then, you know, a couple of days later, um, uh, one of the lead designers came around and we had a conversation and it was totally the opposite where he was just like, he's like, yeah, like, you know, we'll like, let me know what you're interested in. We'll get you on the design track. You know, we love moving people up. It'll be great. Like, you know, just, you know, put your time in in QA and, uh, and learn the ropes and, uh, and yeah, we'll see if we can find some work for you. And he absolutely did. Like, you know, like I said, 10, 11 months later, he was my boss. Um, so just those two, like, like, you know, it, you sort of see the, like, you look, you like look down the, the, you know, the road that diverges in the yellow wood and you see one way that you go and then the other way you could have gone. And so when I hit the point, um, uh, after shipping bio two, um, uh, we were, I think a lot of people were really, um, uh, sort of in this like fugue state, like we didn't quite know what was coming next. Um, and we didn't know if he wanted to be there and we gelled really well as a team, the design team, like that, that were some of the most brilliant designers I've worked with were, you know, were, uh, were part of the Bioshock 2 design team. You just need to look at like what they went on to do to see how true that is. But, um, but nothing interesting was coming along. And so all the really like, you know, the, these like really sharp people that, um, we had gelled together as a team started just dropping off and leaving. And so we hired replacements and, you know, they, they were like, they were good people too. Like they were, you know, they were competent and they were nice and I have nothing bad to say about them, but they just were not motivated by the same, uh, feature sets that like they hired for when they were hiring for bio two, like when they were hiring for bio two, they wanted very systems driven people who were really like, you know, sort of interested in, in pushing what, um, what you could do with sort of narrative and games and that sort of thing. And then when we were hiring up for the su subsequent project, XCOM, um, or I should say the Bureau, I guess, when we were hiring up for that, like we knew the games would be different. And so we hired a different set of people and they weren't people who were interested in systemic gameplay. Um, and, you know, and so I feel like when we hit that point, like I felt a little, a little aimless and, um, I had been throwing myself into my indie work a lot because I, I realized, you know, that the, the game that I've been working on sort of like to teach myself unity and, and, uh, sort of make a little side project, um, was really, really what was keeping me going. Um, and when I thought about the problems I enjoyed solving the most on it, it was the programming problems. Um, it was like, you know, it was just like the weird vector math and these weird transformations and like, Oh, can I make the shader do this? Like those sorts of things were what I was really gravitating towards. The design was kind of suffering as a result. And like, as proud as I am of having shipped that game, like it's not a super well-designed game. And I'll admit that. Um, but I, I, you know, I love it. Um, and so, uh, I, yeah, like I said, I thought about the, the problems that I enjoyed solving and I thought, I would have the conversation again with somebody else and be like, okay, like, sure. I don't have a CS degree, but like, it's just knowledge, right? Like you can get that. Like, so I went and talked to uh, one of the, one of the programmers there at a at 2k at the time and basically recounted sort of this, this story about like, oh yeah, this guy told me I'd never, never you know, be a programmer because I didn't have a CS degree. And he just kind of like shrugged and shook his head and he was like, just learn the stuff. Like nobody cares what you got your degree from. The important thing is the knowledge. Says um, Leon. <laughs> yeah, and, and no, actually, it was uh, it was Olaf. Olaf. Yeah. Yeah. Just do it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, and so, sort of spurred on by that, like him and uh, him and uh, Mark Fletcher, like they definitely really, uh, really helped me along by you know giving me book recommendations and 
showing me what I needed to know. Cause there was so much stuff I didn't know I needed to know. And, you know, the, all these, these huge gaps that I, that, um, I had because I didn't have that formal education. Like I had a very practical self-taught, like I'm going to learn this because I need to know it for the thing I'm working on, um, which, you know, gets things done, but it doesn't give you a strong foundation for, uh, you know, being part of a team, uh, that people can, you know, somebody who can make code that people can read, uh, and it's like, you know, stable and reliable and debuggable easily and, uh, all that stuff. Um, so yeah, once I, once I filled in those gaps, um, I was, I was able to, to make the jump. There's several layers to that. First of all, uh, we're going to find that first programmer <laughs> that like threw you off the scent, uh, from your true <laughs> calling. Uh, I mean, he's, he's either like super wise or like, it doesn't matter what I say, if you really want to pursue it, which, you know, you need to be, if you want to be a programmer, you're going to re- disregard what I say. Right. Or he was just being a hole for job security. sake. it's like, no, I don't want to oh, spend I, I like, the time I like the with this. I, I like to think it was this, this like <laughs> long game reverse psychology. Like he's stroking his beard. Like maybe in 10 years, he will thank me. Yeah. My experience with programmers, it's more like the latter. <laughs> They're like just super, you know, brute force honesty. Yeah. It's like, no, nah, yeah. you can't do it. Get out, get away. <laughs> um, uh, second part of that, like, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of what development, game development is, and what I like about this industry, it's still very uh, knowledge base uh, rather than degrees. And it's yeah. still true for every discipline, even programmers. Uh, I think besides maybe mobile industry where they have like straight up statisticians <laughs> analyzing data every day, uh, who needs to be that these Ivy League schools, uh other parts of the industry don't need that. And it's all about, can you do the work? Uh, I do agree with you. You know, there are some great, uh, I mean, you got that indirectly, right? By being surrounded by established programmers. You know, that that yeah, is one absolutely. thing at, at school. It, it does provide like, like-minded people before getting in the industry. You kind of looked up because you were already a professional industry in design <laughs> and you just had access. Um but I, I, I do, <laughs> you kind of brought back memories. Yeah, there was a weird period uh, after Bioshock 2 and on the artist side, I uh, felt the same thing, man. A lot of my circles were disappearing or moving on and yeah. I felt like I was being left behind a bit and this, this new crew, super green, didn't understand the history <laughs> that yeah. we went through. And, and so I got a little jaded as well. Um, and knew that, you know, uh, I had to leave, uh, because, because of that reason, because it's, it's just weird, right. When, when your old friends are gone and now you get to make new friends and I don't want to make new friends. Right. Uh, and I also agree that first crew, the OG crew was like, everyone was legit, right. It was top dollar. It was, it was, uh, tandem to how the industry uh well not the industry the company itself was set up for success right and then yeah. we were like a premier studio and then it kind of faltered uh after yeah. bioshock a bit and everyone felt that which is fine but it's one of those periods that you know being older and, and wiser hopefully i would have just <laughs> told myself to just focus on the work and like you said if you're unsatisfied you should leave and it's something that Ray actually told me early in my career. It's like, if you don't like something, just leave. <laughs> just go somewhere else. Um, don't hold on to false hope 
of changing the industry for the better or changing the the company for the better right that was that was definitely a younger <laughs> attitude that i've learned in the the hard way is like yeah you can't pay attention to any of that stuff because we're there to make games and we don't have any control even at elite level you have very little control yeah. um what's impressive is that you were able to reset I mean, uh, I would love to kind of hear your your thinking process. You know, you were mentioning how it it led up to that. You were kind of discovering and you had help from your colleagues in the programming department to kind of lead you to shortcut your education a bit Mm -hmm. to to books and and knowledge that actually are useful. You don't have to go through the crap. Um, Like how difficult was it? Uh, Was it a necessary step for you to go indie to practice all this stuff? to kind of wow. <laughs> okay because i i always imagine for for developers when they're working at a studio um especially if they want a promotion or uh uh which is <laughs> supposed to be a lot easier than actual like a whole discipline jump right from design a program like within a studio that's very hard i i would imagine and i've seen uh for people to talk to an old employer like hey i'm actually want to be a programmer now and say well we, we didn't hire you for that just go back to work <laughs> this next episode uh I try to do this as often as I can, and it's to bring indie developers who are made up of a team of one or two people uh, at, at, at a lot of times, uh, in a lot of instances. And this is with Abby and Tony from Black Tabby Games. So Abby and Tony uh, both founded Black Tabby Games together and been shipping narrative-driven story games. Abby, interesting enough, had created a cult following uh because she established herself as a comic artist um independently before jumping into games and have been very successful at it so it was great to kind of talk to these two um power couple and about their process and how they were basically uh, doing everything on their own from coming with the idea but as well as marketing and how viable of an option that has been for them. So enjoy episode 261, Abby and Tony from Black Tabby Games. Is there anything you can kind of uh, shell out there for, 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 for listeners? Well, uh, I think it does kind of, you have to be able to uh, be working on something where you can kind of enter the state where you just kind of lose yourself into it, but there are ways you can get there, I think. Uh, So there are some apps that you can use where it has you focus for 45 to 50 minutes on and then like 10 minutes off. And it seems like that is kind of a good system. I've heard there have been studies on this and apparently that's just kind of a good cycle to get into. So you can reward yourself. And I feel like that's also important to reward yourself after certain landmarks. So even if the reward is just, wow, you did it. You reached the next goal. So actually, Tony wound up drawing up a, um, a pie chart for me when I was in my deadline for the Crossroads at Midnight. Oh, yeah. yeah, where uh, every time I finished a page, I could enter it into the, the pie chart and it would move a little bit. So that was pretty good. Tiny that was a nice, sliver. Yeah, it was a nice motivator to see it keep, uh, keep going. And I see a lot of cartoonists doing that, actually, with really tough deadlines where they wind up coming up with a chart or some kind of a system where they get to fill in something to say, yes, I have finished part of this. And to just see how far it's progressed as you go is really satisfying. So that's something. Oh, and have a nice schedule. Having a schedule 
is wonderful. I love it. Wake up at a certain time every day. Make sure that you stop working at a certain time every day, even if that time is like 11 p.m. Mm -hmm. right before you go to bed. So, Also probably just sit down and do the thing. Oh, yeah. And sit down and do the thing. That feels like the most important. Yeah. Like you have to have a... Oh, deadlines. Self-imposed deadlines are incredible. Like say, I will have a page done by this day just to get started, just so that you have something where it says, no, no, you have to sit down and start this at some point. I think something that was super helpful for us is we had a bunch of our close friends and family do like alpha testing of our early builds. And that added this social pressure of, oh gosh, we haven't delivered a build to them with more content in like a couple of weeks. <laughs> we got to really get in the zone. We promised them like, something. That's, that's your that's my motivator. Thing. That's yeah. for sure. I've had, yeah. to, I've had to do a lot of projects where nobody got to see it. To be uh, fair, I feel like your motivator is uh, honestly, you just are incredibly disciplined at sit yeah. down and crank stuff out. It's true. <laughs> like, I, it's not that I doubt that the methods you you shared are like helpful, but I feel like do you use any of the things you just you, like? You know, I use like, the pie chart. You use the pie chart, yeah, but, but other I than that, you just sit down and do the work. I do just sit down and do the work. In fact, I actually kind of sometimes find those little apps where it's like grow a tree in fifty minutes, and then you get a break. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little distracting because then it makes me take breaks. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah, yeah. yeah. But I think you just fall far along. Yeah, your hab- you already habit formed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you're there. Um, yeah. But I will say the tree app actually was very useful. Yeah, you like the tree app. I was doing the first draft of the first episode of Scarlet Hollow because it was just so different from anything I had worked on before. So I do feel like that's kind of like more of an entry level. How do I get into working in in this certain way kind of thing? Yeah. I, yeah, it was a slog. It's very different for writing comics. And I feel like there's something too where it's like people have a tendency to view or to like assume that a project they're working on should like move or progress at a linear pace. But I feel like, you know, at least for me when I'm sitting down and doing like, you know, putting the scripts into the engine and doing edits and stuff, like sometimes it's just, I need to sit down and move incredibly slowly for an hour while my brain shifts into gear. Uh, and then at that point, like I'm able to move a lot more quickly, but I feel like if I were to just, you know, kind of do half an hour of being stuck, give up a little bit and then come back again, like that would kind of reset. And I would never get into the sort of flow state needed to get it done. That is true. Like this also works um, kind of as the months progress during, especially these like episode breaks that we do. Mm-hmm. So it starts out really slow where we're both kind of not doing very well at doing our parts. And then it speeds up a lot as the deadline approaches. So sometimes that's just how people work. We're both very good at crunch. We're great at crunch, which I wish we weren't great at. I wish we were just good at working very consistently so that we could just not have to have those few weeks at the end where we're going nonstop. Yeah. That's just how it is. Yeah, I think, yeah, the key thing that I've learned is it's um, just accountability, either other people or yourself. It's like a checklist for yourself and like, hey, I didn't get to this. Just, it's just people. And I think that's the thing with games. You just got to have deadlines. (laughs) No deadlines, you're 
you're creating forever and you know there's no one's going to see it it's like why does it matter um and i think that's the problem where a lot of developers just kind of just are too relaxed and you know it's ready when it's ready it's just it's the worst model that you can have for a, for a creative <laughs> like, yeah don't worry about it it's not. i feel i feel like you need a, a push and pull of those two things um because I'm I'm personally very much in favor of uh, delaying stuff if it needs extra time in the oven, mm-hmm. but there there needs to be that balance struck between this is being delayed because delaying it'll make it better versus mm-hmm. this is being delayed because that means we can push off our deadline. And I'm scared it's not good enough as yeah. it is. It's that phrase, right? Perfect is the enemy of the good. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. or the done, which I'm, I'm also <laughs> so it's true. It's good to just finish something. Like, there's always stuff you can go back and fix. I feel that way about all of my projects, but at the same time, I'm more invested in having people read it than making sure that it is the absolute most flawless version of itself. Yeah. yeah. Well, that 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 other thing just doesn't exist, too. Yeah. There's always changes that could be made. I'm always getting better, so I'm gonna look at anything that I did, even as suit like recent as a year ago and just be like well i could fix that good or now and in a year i'll say the same that's when you make a sequel that's what sequels are for <laughs> yeah or like re-releases like all yeah. re-releases remastering it's, yeah that's the whole point uh i do want to ask you about this so you kind of mentioned you guys kind of settling on kickstarter platform uh mm-hmm. to kind of do this crowdfunding and obviously there's plenty others or even self-hosting you also mentioned uh two-thirds of that was mostly from your own audience and one-third was through discovery um that pays for the taxes and fees and everything after looking at all that, was there ever a consideration of just self crowdfunding on your own website, cut out all the fees, or is it still worth it to have on Kickstarter for exposure? Would love yes, to kind of hear your yes. thoughts. Okay. Definitely use Kickstarter. Don't use any other website either. Uh, Kickstarter uh-huh. has the name recognition. People trust it. People, uh, you will get, uh, like, Kickstarter has its own built in audience of people who are willing to go there and fund projects. Uh, it, it, it makes you whatever you're making more reputable. Yeah, it's a difference of thousands. Like even if you're looking at another, thousands of money. Yeah, <laughs> even if you're looking at another crowdfunding platform like Indiegogo, like I would say, just alone the fact that Kickstarter will only give you the money if you fund, like makes people treat your project more seriously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You see a game on Indiegogo that's trying to raise like a hundred thousand dollars and they're at like twenty thousand. Like are you are 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 you going to back that knowing that like feel- they might not even come close to getting what they need to finish it? Especially when crowdfunding projects are already a bit of a risky investment. Yeah. Um yeah. Yeah, like uh I always kind of um take note of that like the the there was like a few years ago where kickstarter was everything and then like a lot of bad apples happened where they were just taking people's money and that kind of ruined it for the rest of us are we still in that kind of phase with distrust has it damaged is the damage there to stay with the stigma of crowdfunding or do you feel like that's disappearing slowly like what are your analysts i think it's like always kind of been a certain level of distrust because some people just don't follow through, even if they yeah. don't mean to scam people, things happen, things fall through. Um, 
I or think... sometimes they did mean to scam people, but that's just kind of a part <laughs> right. of the risk. So it's always been there. If anything, I feel like it's uh, kind of reached a threshold of reputability where it's just not going to go past a certain point where you shouldn't work with them anymore unless yeah. they do something really bad. There was all that stuff that happened with uh, the union unionizing there but i'm not sure but they have a union they have a union now oh who has a kickstarter Kickstarter, yeah Yeah. can i talk about that a bit i i'm not familiar with that side too much i would suggest people look up articles about okay (laughs) so the 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 company (laughs) itself has has a union Uh, yeah the workers unionized uh Management did what management does whenever there's a union. And, just say, oh, come on, guys. You know, pushed oh. back pretty hard, but mm-hmm. the union wound up forming. Um, so I don't know. There's like this balancing act where I personally, my takeaway is, well, they have a union and that's great. Um, mm-hmm. And not, they have a union and their management is mad at the union. Mm-hmm. Um, management is always going to be Because management is always going to be mad at unions. Um, yeah. But I, I think one of the things with like reputability on the platform too is everyone at this point knows that crowdfunding is a risk and it's a question of what kind of reliability you can project as a creator. Because I have done seven Kickstarters now. All funded, all funded, all fulfilled. Mm-hmm. You can look at that track record just by clicking on her account. We like made a conscious decision to run this through Abby's Kickstarter account and not make a new one for our studio mm-hmm. because someone can click through and see, Oh, this person over the past decade has run like six projects, all of them funded, all of them were fulfilled. I can reasonably trust that yeah. my money is going to go towards getting a product here. Whereas a lot of times you'll see, you know, somebody goes to Kickstarter, they've never backed any other projects. They've never launched any other projects. And I think that raises some red flags. I know that's how I, that's the first thing I always do when I'm looking at a campaign and deciding, oh, do I want to like put some money down on on supporting this? It's first and foremost, have they run a Kickstarter before? Um, And like, have they been active on the platform? Because someone who's active on the platform, like kind of understands, like would inherently understand more of the risks that are at play. They've seen what have happened with other, with other projects. Um, and then there's like subtler signs too. I think uh, something that also stands out to me. And I think this is the case for you too, but like sometimes you see a project that's like asking for way too little money. And at that point, like the red flags go up for either uh this is a scam and they're trying to just like make the threshold low enough that they keep whatever they're the raising for, mm-hmm. or they just don't understand how expensive it is to make the thing that they're trying to make. Which means mm-hmm. that they're probably not going to be able to make the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, so this next episode was, uh, is a long time friend with Daniel. Uh, he's been a key investor in major companies in the past, tied into the game industry, uh, and was gracious enough to kind of come on to answer a lot of my investor questions because that world to me is a big mystery. It's uh, probably the same to you all who are listening. And it was great to kind of get his insight as an investor of what he and a bunch of his colleagues are looking for nowadays for what is a successful, viable product that can get 
invested. So this episode is from 264, investing in the game industry with Daniel. The only way to kind of correct that, mm. there's only two ways, right? The managers have to be better at uh, at uh, nailing their vision uh, first mm. try, which isn't going to happen. Uh, or the tools have to be uh, fast enough so that it doesn't feel like a sacrifice in time. Mm. And, and content uh, every mm. time something else needs to be generated new. And I think that's the direction the industry is moving uh, and learning from uh, to be better at making games. So I, I think everything that you're doing uh, with all the companies have, have been a great improvement in that. I mean, be, be, you know, when I, after I spent about one year in the industry and started to, I mean, realize like initially you almost cannot believe it that so much content is being thrown away. Oh yeah. It's <laughs> once you realize it's, it's almost mind boggling. I mean, it's like, uh, uh, you know, it, it will be, it will be cool to live in a, an alternative universe where, not, where all the games that got scrapped got made and then you could try them out. It's probably a lot of great stuff there that never made it. And it, I just can't imagine the, the pain of working on something, you know, some project work for five years and it gets canceled and you can't show anything that you did. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's even worse. I haven't personally uh, I mean, went through that, but. Of course, we all know I mean, friends that did. I don't know if any other industry has anything, you know, similar. <laughs> I mean, just, uh, I mean, maybe yeah. I think all parts of entertainment has something like that. I mean, we've mm. heard movies being scrapped. I mean, I'm mm. sure there's music. Movies are probably mm. our, our closest cousin mm. in terms of just scrapped work. Um, but I've only gone as far as getting my levels cut and that mm. hurt enough. And the unfortunate thing is... When we talk about seasoned developers, are, are people mm. who are kind of used to that and kind of muffle that part of their creativity going forward to mm. move forward? Mm. Uh, and it it, it kind of it's a detachment mechanism, basically. Oh, well, I'll get cut. Well, on to the next thing. Next how, time I'll, I'll try how not do to you, care as much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How, how do you restart your creative and passion once you build something that you love and then it's, it just gets thrown out? You just got to be detached. Mm. I mean, at mm. some point, you put your heart and soul in something and that's mm. when it hurts the most when things do get cut or it's not restarted. But also the the reasons, the different reasons I've heard of things being cut, it's like... It's know, nothing to do with you, yeah. A lot <laughs> no, of, it's not even a good reason. Like it's like uh, you know, someone rewrote the story. It's like someone okay, but the you know, can, yeah. <laughs> It's always a it's a running joke with at least environment artists because I feel environment mm-hmm. artists throw away the most stuff. I, I don't mm-hmm. know. <laughs> I don't know how el- how anyone else can compete with us because we literally build the world and throw it away, right? So, <laughs> You might have a character here and there, but I can't imagine anyone throwing more stuff than us. And so the running joke with us has always been designers and narrative writers, right? Because whenever Mm. they have a new thought, a whole Mm. world gets kind of tossed aside. Um, Mm. A lot of months and years even kind of just thrown for the betterment of the game, right? Betterment of the game. (laughs) But but yeah, I I think what we're talking about here is, is, is really relevant it's it's a pattern that i've been seeing for years where everything is moving towards proceduralism just bettering mm-hmm. fastering uh less people type of thing i would love to kind of dive in a little history of your quick days because it seems like it informed mm-hmm. a lot of your decisions going forward and mm-hmm. it was a like a learning journey for you of mm-hmm. uh really 
confirming yourself as an investor in, in the world of games, right? Mm. At least game tech. So from your day one of, it, it sounded like what you saw was impressive, but mm. also your instincts too of being ahead of the curve of this is new, but no one's paying attention to it. There's a huge upside to this. I'm going to get on this. Um, from then on, uh, how did your role evolve? I mean, what what kind of things? Because at that time, I, I, I'm, I'm assuming that you, you, you were just being introduced Right, you did your own study, but like being in the trenches now, you're hmm. probably learning a lot more about game games in general, right? Yeah, I mean, there are so you, you, I, I mean, Teddy and Vakar were such impressive. Uh, I mean, Teddy has been there is a great interview you guys did with with Teddy where he goes over uh, the history, but uh, you know, basically scanning was everything he, he'd been doing since he, he was like 10. So, uh, and Vakar was this amazing entrepreneur who was running a big company in, in Pakistan. So they were build, able to build that. So it was just a, such a super team of, of founders, uh, who are, who are, you know, super, super dedicated and probably the best in the world at, at uh, what they were doing, but they were just under, um, you know, overwhelmed, understaffed. Uh, and so, we took in a bit of funding and I was mostly working on the funding side. I mean, I, I briefly had the title as CFO, but replaced myself with someone better. And, uh, just basically we're just making sure if, you know, if we needed to raise money, we, we were able to do that at a good valuation. And, uh, uh, if there was interest from others to acquire the company to, to, negotiate, uh, around those terms and, and see what, what would be the best outcome for the shareholders, you know, who were, you know, we had some share, you know, some just financial shareholders wanted maximum return, uh, mm-hmm. and the founders, they had the more, uh, they also had, odd, you know, I, I think money was almost secondary to them. Yeah. And, uh, mm-hmm. that's why the Epic transaction was so, you know, if I may say Epic, because I've never, <laughs> you know, because they made it free, which was like, um, I mean, how often do you see an M and A, and then the com- and then the acquired company is now free? Uh, so it was a cultural fit. And uh, um, but going back to your your question, yeah, I think initially getting people to use photogrammetry was not as easy as it looks now. Uh, a lot of people had their pipelines. A lot of people were working. Uh, you know. M- I don't know what I should call it manually or yeah. non-photogrammetric pipelines. And, uh, but once some of the big guys started using it, uh, many people just, uh, yeah, just fall joined up. Um, I mean, now it's almost difficult to think about that there was opposition or, or doubt about photogrammetry ever being in a pipeline. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but now it's pretty, pretty calm or no i guess it's standard yeah <laughs> it's it's definitely a, a shifting mindset for a lot of people I, I myself was in that transitional phase i think it was early 2016 or something mm-hmm. and it was just right after battlefield was the big photogram which mm. is here everyone mm. should use it and so we were working on cod and we were just mm. uh you know doing our own scans and trying to investigate mm. you know how this fits in our current pipeline mm. 
Mm. And yeah, I, I think there was a big mixture of, you know, the younger mm. guys and gals mm. being all up for it and being very interested. Mm. And the older people who have their set pipelines mm. didn't want to mess with that and saw it mm. as a threat, maybe, you know, mm. um, or not as um, it's not good enough. I can I can probably make this uh, in, in, in designer faster mm. or whatever. Right. And not mm. getting the potential of it. Mm. So, yeah, there was a weird phase for a few years. I, I think, like he said, it's now it's kind of if you're making a realistic game, you should be using photogrammetry. Uh, mm. Why are you sculpting rocks? Right. It seems almost dumb. Uh, it mm. is dumb uh, for <laughs> you to 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 waste your time ZBrushing that. Right. Uh, but it, it seems to be the factor and we just had Luis Carell who, who worked at side effects for a long time, uh, on Houdini stuff. And, um, it, it was one of those factors where we kind of, uh, came to the conclusion because of the big guys for the industry to really change. The big guys have to adopt it first and then it kind of spreads and, 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 and throughout. Right. Uh, the problem with the big guys is that they are five, eight-year machines. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And most of the research and new tool developments are happening at the beginning of their cycle. Mm. So, they're going to have to wait for like the next PlayStation for things to basically uh, get picked up. And so, unfortunately, uh, we didn't have to wait that long. It was around mm. that time where... Mm big studios were adopting it and it'll, it it was introduced mostly too it seemed like it mostly got introduced by hobbyists or mm. junior developers right mm. uh that were toying with all these different ideas mm. but yeah it, it's a funny thing to kind of take a look back at how technology our, our our jumps are made and it's usually not from seasoned developers which is odd but it, it has to be for the industry to kind of kind of adopt everything um yeah i think uh i think for with with the with 3d artist tools there's a you know it's easier to put them in the pipeline within you know during a project i mean it's not easy but it's mm -hmm. it's easier you, you can you if you're making a photorealistic game you you can start using megascans even you know yeah. a few years in but um, for some other tools like uh, Elias Software, which is an audio tool, which is uh, like it's a you know it's a runtime software, which is you know it's, it has to run in the game to to play all the, sh the stuff that that you can only implement at the beginning of a new yeah. game developer. So you know if, if we're speaking to people now, we have you know we have to wait until they're starting a new game where they can look at the pipeline. So getting yeah. in, so getting in, and this was similar to Quixel. It's a bit of a uh, yeah, runway even uh, to, to to be adopted. All right, last but not least, this is with Rika Yoshino. She is currently at that game company as a art director, a social art director, even on recent game Sky: The Children of Light. So Rika uh, was connected through uh, meeting Cecil, which Cecil have been on this. Uh, podcast many many times and uh, was able to kind of follow her career through her uh, through our conversation so it was a very interesting story she basically wanted to work for that game company since college and didn't really switch to games uh, while she was studying until the last year of her college career so to have so much focus and basically end up at a leadership position at 
a game company that she always wanted to work for. It was quite a story. And uh, I was thankful to kind of uh, be able to kind of hear it and, and learn from it. So this is from episode 279, Art Director Aspirations with Rika Yoshino. Enjoy. Then we only had about like four or five women in a studio of 25-ish. Um, and, you know, I think it was, I dressed up, I th- I'm not sure if any other woman dressed up, but they were taking a group photo. Um, and I was just not comfortable being in a group of a dozen dressed up fancy men and I'm the only woman in there. I don't know what was, what that message would send out, um, if that photo got out into social media. So those are kind of things that like kind of tug out the back of my mind. Um, you know, even though there are no ill intentions involved in anyone with anyone. Um, so, you know, it is, it is very interesting. It's tricky. And I think, you know, just have to make sure that you understand um, as a woman, I understand my, you know, my boundaries and comfort zone and um, understand that you do have people around you that will be supportive of you and they'll trust you and believe you. Um, so, you know, you're, you're not alone. Um, and I think because um I guess because I still have those difficulties sometimes, like it would be nice that if, if I could, you know, become a figure for someone in the future to kind of feel safe or be like a safe, safe place for them. Yeah, I, I completely uh, understand. Like, uh, because when whenever you're at a company, you're always trying to immediately look for someone that's similar because there's that instant connection and that, that instant support, right? And uh, race, gender, that helps with uh, the the advancement, at least motivation to advance in the hierarchy, right? Because you can see that it's possible. And uh, that comfort alone is, is, is just rewarding in itself to, to know that there's someone else uh, like you there at a group setting. Every time I work at a company, there's always, you know, the male always outnumber the women uh the only time that i felt like it was close not completely 50 50 was when i was working at a mobile studio like a tech company right so tech companies are a little different from game studios and that's when i was like oh wow this is a lot of women here right completely new to me but like whenever i worked at those studios with very few women i was like man these these women i feel bad because there's so much unwanted advances so much like just the sky is swarming around uh, that. Uh, and uh, it's just a lot of pressure, I think, on top of the actual pressures of performing well at the job, right? So I do I do agree that things are getting better. And I feel like the smaller companies just tend to have a better ratio. Uh, and I at least kind of see AAA companies slowly getting better, right? But, you know, like a, a major beast uh it, it takes a little longer right to move things in the right direction change so, happens over time it won't happen overnight so right right i think we'll we'll get there i think we just all have to keep working towards it yes yes yeah. but uh yeah i'm glad you know you're you're in the position that you are and you move past all those uh <laughs> advances right and, and 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 in a great place right now uh, in, in a leadership position at a very great company, 
Um, and being as young as you are too. I mean, you're, you're, that's a trifecta right there. So like, I think when I first became in a leadership position or even when I switched to a new job, right. There's always that sense of imposter syndrome and, and that, that, that kind of eats up, uh, from the reality of things, right? Did you have, did you kind of go through that phase being such a young developer as well as, uh, a female and all these things that you feel on paper should work against you, but clearly have not. It's all like internal thoughts in a lot of the cases. Did you feel, uh, I mean, what, what was that change like to, to finally kind of be at your dream studio and, and kind of leading a department? Um, I think there are two different parts of me that think differently, right? I think imposter syndrome is something that just doesn't go away. Um, and, you know, I think I think that's maybe what every game dev or artists, creatives um, suffer from, you know, because there's always someone better. There's always, you know, you're just so critical of your work. Um, but I think, you know, if you kind of flip that, you kind of need to understand that because you can critique your work, um, it's just that your eyes are getting better, your perception of art and the thing is getting better so it just means that you know you just have to now raise your skills and then um, it's just a rinse and repeat but also at the same time um, you know I there's a core part of me that I understand where you know the reason why I'm not always happy or I'm I have an imposter syndrome is because I want there's so much I want to learn and I know that there's a lot that I haven't learned so I know that there's a you know, part of me that's like passionate and driven. Um, and, you know, even though I feel one way, I also do understand that like, you know, having that drive is also a unique thing about me, right? That's what makes me special. And that's what makes me continue growing, continue learning. Um, and, you know, you kind of live in this duality of, you know, conflicting feelings, Um but, you know, I don't know, I, I, I don't know if it's going to sound, uh, it's not going to sound reassuring because I think you will probably feel this way. Um, no matter what you do, as long as you want to keep getting better and keep growing, um, you know, I do also think like, oh, I don't have enough years of experience to, you know, like, am I really, you know, can people really trust me to do this? But, you know, at the end of the day, it's like I care and I'm learning and I'm, I'm open to, um, you know, constructive criticism and feedback. Um, I think when you stop growing as a person and when you stop having this fear that you're just, you know, if you start feeling like you're just good enough and you don't have to do anything else, that's it's like you might feel fine. But I think that's kind of when you when you stop being an artist when you stop being um, someone who wants to make things um, and you lose that drive. Right. And, you know, it's, it's really, really interesting. And I think I'm trying my best to just focus on the fact that like, I want to get better. And because I'm still passionate, I'm still, you know, I'm young and there's so much more that I can accomplish. And if I kind of start thinking about it like that, it's, it becomes a more, more positive and you kind of stop thinking about the, imposter syndrome aspect of 
um, working as a game dev. <laughs> yeah, I think that internal conflict is always healthy. Uh, that means there's a lot more room to growth and humility uh, to grow. Um, you're, you're clearly qualified, so <laughs> I wouldn't, uh, yeah, I wouldn't worry about it as much. Uh, I think uh, if anything, I would love to kind of talk about the, you know, we've had Cecil on this, even had Eric on this at the very beginning before the launch of the game. And now uh, ever since you know, the game has crossed a, a major milestone, right? A hundred million downloads, which is insane uh, because I think it was the, one of the first, I would say big major release on a phone, right? Uh, you guys made like this, crazy shift um double down on on phone being like the future and now slowly it's it's looking to release on on a console on the switch right so yeah. we'd love to kind of give some uh it get some insight from you about that 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 journey of uh <laughs> from mobile to now like what somewhat you know surprising somewhat not surprising was this always part of the game plan uh for growth for the game. Yeah, of course. Um, so I actually joined that game company slash Sky um, right before they went out to beta um, or um, yeah, right before beta. So it was relatively early on um, the game back then was nothing like what, what it is today. Um, and, you know, when I joined, they just kind of, uh, you know, shared the news with the world about what kind of game they were working on. Um, and, you know, I came in not really knowing that it was a mobile title uh, because all their previous ones have been consoles. And, um, you know, I've always wanted to work on consoles. Uh, and, you know, I think at first I was a little confused, but um, but the first thing I did when I you know, when I started working was I just, I played the game and I asked a lot of questions. Um, and one of those questions that I asked different people around, you know, in the studio was that, why, why is it mobile and why are, you know, what, what are your thoughts on it? Um, and ultimately I think I kind of came around and understood where they're coming from. Um, and the main reason was being, you know, um, we want to create something that could be played by anyone that has a big reach and um, phones just happen to be a device that a lot of people own, right? And, um, you know, not everyone has access to phones and tablets, but um, there's definitely more people that own phones than they do a PlayStation um, or an Xbox or even a PC, right? So, um, you know, I thought about it and, you know, if there is a game that I could play with my mom or dad who don't play games ever, um, phones would be the only way to play with them. And, you know, when I started thinking about my family, that's when I was kind of convinced that mobile might be a really interesting way to go about this. Um, and I know we did hear a lot of feedback from fans and, um, supporters, um, people that were interested in this game that they wanted on a different platform. Why does it have to be on mobile? Um, but our studio kind of stood by our beliefs that like games could be for everyone and should be for everyone. Um, 
So, you know, it's been on mobile, but I don't think I think of this as like a mobile game. Um, it's just mobile just happens to be a means to an end. Um, and, you know, with Switch, um, I think Switch is just like the, a wonderful console to have released on um, after the mobile um, because it's so portable and um, I feel like they're they're relatively family friendly too. Um, it's 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 a console, but it also does feel like a phone in a way. It's just I think the portability probably um, kind of contributes to that. And um, our entire team is so excited. They've done such a wonderful job on making this come true. Um, everyone's been you know crunching to get this done, and it's kind of finally done. Um, and you know now we get to kind of see our game on a full screen TV. It's it's pretty amazing. Um, but you know our platform choices aren't exactly. I mean we do have to think about the platforms, but like it's it's coming from a standpoint of like how can we connect people? How can we connect as many people, friends, family together, rather than. Um, which console has the most audience or which console it's best suited for. Um, so in that way, I, you know, everything feels very, very natural to me. Um, and I think, I think we did a good thing that it's mobile. Like, I think we maybe have created something, um, created a space on mobile where people can kind of find different kind of entertainment and enjoyment um, out of what they can do, especially in, you know, hard times, like during, during COVID and the pandemic. So, um, yeah. Well, uh, I mean, we're, we're, we're in that kind of weird phase right now, not weird, but exciting phase where we're transitioning out of the pandemic. Right. Uh, I can see that you're still at home. A lot of remote people are slowly crawling their way back in the office. Some studios are doing the hybrid thing. Some studios are uh, completely leaving it up uh, to the to to the artist or developer whether they want to do it full time at home or, or not. Um, at the same time, you know, we <laughs> the pandemic launched two new consoles, right? There's a lot of exciting things that are happening with all types of engines and upgrades. Uh, without having, you know, I don't want you to prematurely announce anything, but I, what what are your general thoughts of this? transitional phase is that game company still remote like is are you guys still hybrid what's the what's the consensus for the next year okay for for the foreseeable time um wow um it's a pretty long time um and i think because america might be like one of the few countries that's finally opening up but you know the rest of the world is not necessarily you know fully open um so that's kind of interesting to see what games kind of offer um, you know, for those, for those countries and players in that country. Um, but yeah, I, I, I have a love hate relationship with working from home. I think if, you know, maybe the one great thing that comes out of this pandemic is for companies to be flexible about having a hybrid a hybrid, you know, system, that would be a beautiful thing for me. But, um, I like working in the office. I love seeing people and I want to collaborate with them. And I think especially when you create artwork, um, it's much easier and much more productive to do it in person. Um, 
you don't have to go through the typing and communicating. It's really hard to communicate visuals and feelings over over text sometimes, right? It's just much easier to see it in person. Um, but when I'm wearing a producer hat, it's much easier to just work from home, just take meetings and heads down and get get um, stuff out of the way. Um, and, you know, that's probably why I prefer a hybrid structure, but um, I think everyone feels differently. And um, I hope, you know, companies do kind of recognize that even if people do work from home, we still get our stuff done. All right. And that concludes this best of 2021 series. And like I said, it's been a long time absence. You know, I took basically a two, three month hiatus from the podcast. First time ever in my five year time of podcasting this show and uh, basically needed to recharge, was kind of burnt out, but also kind of balancing everything else that I was doing. So now that I'm back, uh, there's a lot of things that I want to uncover. Just about, just the last three months alone, the game industry decided to just keep going without me and have been a crazy roller coaster of excitement, but a lot of uncertainty as well. Uh, like I mentioned at the beginning of this Best of 2020 series, uh, there's a lot of things that I want to uncover and share with you guys. The world of NFT is here to stay, even though developers are pushing back. The great resignation and how uh, the pandemic basically pushed people to uh, want to stay at home and away from offices. Uh, and generally, what is up with all these acquisitions in the metaverse, right? There's so much to, uh, to uncover and I can't wait to kind of talk to experts in these fields and learn from them and share that with you guys. So thank you for listening. I'm hoping that you guys continue to listen and enjoy the stuff that I'm putting out there as well as um, coming back every Tuesdays. So back to the regular old schedule, uh, 6 a.m. Pacific time uh, to kind of listen to the latest and greatest. A lot of things are happening. A lot of things I want to share. A lot of excitement from the Game Dev Unchained podcast team to you guys. So thank you for the support and see you guys on the new episode tomorrow. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you are liking the podcast, go to the Apple iTunes store and give Game Dev Unchained a five-star rating. This will help spread the joy and love and exposure for the podcast, and we thank you very much. If you want to continue the conversation, go to our Discord, which can be found on our website, www.gamedevunchained.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at BlueChamps, B-L-U-C-H-A-M-P-S. You want to catch these episodes live every Tuesdays and Thursdays, go to twitch.tv forward slash blue underscore champs. Email me any of your concerns or questions that you want me to read aloud at the beginning of each episode at info at gamedevunchained.com. And if you want to further support us and help unlock the next feature, which is the voicemail feature, go to patreon.com 
forward slash blue champs. This gives listeners a chance to kind of call in, leave a message for both me and the guests to answer your deepest, darkest questions and comment on your deepest, darkest secrets. Thank you, everybody.